This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're going to have two guests, Dr. John Traveline, a deacon and internist specializing in critical care medicine, and Louise Mitchell, a bioethics professor who is also associate editor of the Lineker Quarterly, which is the medical moral journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Together, they edited a groundbreaking book called Catholic Witness in Healthcare, which should be of interest to both medical professionals and the learned layperson. But before the interview, let's look at some recent medical news. All right, Tom. Well, I've got a new article, relatively new. It came out in December of 2017, talking about new definitions about guidelines for blood pressure. So we we always are worried about blood pressure, high blood pressure, low blood pressure. And in the medical community, the definitions and the technicalities change frequently about what we're concerned about and what our goals and treatment are. And this didn't actually have a lot of groundbreaking new evidence. However, it did change some definitions such that it started calling folks hypertensive when their blood pressure was in the 130s on top, the systolic number, and the 80s on the bottom. This was a a change because previously it was over 140, and so now it's the 130s. And that means that more than half of adults have high blood pressure in America. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's not a, a rare disease anymore. It's actually practically ubiquitous. And it harkens back to in medical school, I, I learned about hypertension being called essential hypertension, where they thought it was an essential part of growing older. But now we, we do treat it in some ways as a disease process because it, it leads to higher risks of, we know, at least strokes, heart attacks, and even dementia with microvascular changes. So Blood pressure is something that we we all have. Half of us have too high of blood pressure, and it's something that we all should be worried about, I think. I'm curious. Most people, when they have their blood pressure taken, and it's at one point in time, have they done any studies with, you know, sequential blood pressures or monitored blood pressures throughout the day to see how those single one-point-in-time blood pressures correlate with how you are, you know, throughout the day. Mm-hmm. They have looked at that. We, what we would call that is an ambulatory blood pressure, something out while they're ambulating out in the community. And it actually correlates pretty well, depending on the study that you look at. For a while, the push was for, for people to have continuous blood pressure monitoring for a couple of days out wow. and about, and they would return it. That fell out of fashion very quickly because people's arms got tired. Uh, but all I, the squeezing. I, I do think it is worthwhile for people to be checking their blood pressure on a regular basis at home, especially if they're borderline or have high blood pressure, because that eliminates what we call the white coast syndrome, the white coat syndrome, where people come to the doctor and their blood pressure is either higher or even lower than it normally is because of the stress and anxieties and different environment of a doctor's office. Oh, when I'm doing uh, surgery, we do a blood pressure before we operate because it helps me to know (laughs) how much bleeding I'm going to have. It is common, I mean common to see blood pressures of 190 or 200 over 110 to 120. What's going on? You know, it it depends on the person. Sometimes it it definitely can be an anxiety and a stress response, but there are unfortunately people whose blood pressures are way up there. And And it's very complicated, actually, and I always try and look at the individual patient about what it means because for a young, healthy 20-something or 30-year-old adult, we know that we like the blood pressure below 120 over 80, although there's a big question in my mind when you start treatment. What if it's routinely in the 130s over 80s? These new guidelines call that hypertensive, Um, but we know also that there's morbidity with taking medications. There's side effects and the burden of taking a pill every day. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, as we get into the older adults in their 70s and 80s even, the risk is far greater in my mind to have low blood pressure. I always tell those folks that my goal for them is really up in the 140s even and trying to keep it below 150 on on top and below 100 on the bottom because the greater risk is if we get their blood pressure too low, they become lightheaded and then, heaven forbid, they fall and break a hip. There's a 50% mortality death rate within one year of a hip fracture. And so I think that's a far greater risk than letting the blood pressure run a little bit higher. 
So it's, it's something that needs to be teased out individually. But the takeaway that I found from this article was the recommendations about how to take a blood pressure. And I thought that was something that the viewers would appreciate because it's rarely done to get an accurate blood pressure. They, they should be, number one, sitting in a chair, feet on the floor, with their back supported for over five minutes before taking the blood pressure. Can't be standing or running in at the last minute. You're supposed to avoid caffeine exercise, including running into the doctors, and smoking <laughs> for at least 30 minutes, and they've got to have an empty bladder. All of those will raise the blood pressure. Wow. You're supposed to have no clothing on that arm. You can't test over the long yes. sleeve. Yes. And it can't be hanging down by the patient's elbow. It's got to be in the middle of the patient's upper arm that is resting at heart level. The patient can't be holding it on their own, and it can't be lower than the heart or higher than the heart. And last, that I've, I've never really seen, Neither the patient nor the observer should be talking during the blood pressure management or the five minutes leading up to it. All of those things will raise your blood pressure. So in practice, none of this is really being done, but that's really no. the accurate way to get a blood pressure. Very good. Yes, I've had to tell nurses, please don't take it over their clothing. And it's so common, especially in the winter, you've got long sleeves on. But It's if- really inconvenient sometimes to have patients undo it, but... Uh, you know, I when, when patients may uh, have concerns, you know, do we really need to be doing all this? Well, it might mean not taking an extra medicine, you know, and that's usually compelling to a lot of folks. We want to get an accurate result so we can give good advice. You know, it's, it's always seemed to me that treating blood pressure would not be very fulfilling for the doctor or for the patient. Have you seen that? You know, patients don't like it because blood pressure doesn't hurt them. They don't feel badly. As a matter of fact, they may feel worse if it's well-treated. But it's satisfying to me because I do see on a regular basis people benefiting from it. I always think of it as taking, you know, for example, a heart attack that was more or less bound to happen, say, at age 60. And if we can push that out to age 80, that's going to lead to a far different life for this patient. And, yes. and so in my mind, I think it's something that's, that's very valuable, but it is something that needs to be individualized. All of the, the guidelines fall short of looking at this individual patient and the burden either potential side effects or potential consequences may have on them. So it's definitely something to be individualized. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter. So blood pressures over 130 are too high. But as you said earlier, in some older people, uh, their pipes might be a little stiff. Their blood vessels are a little stiff, so they might need a higher pressure to get the right amount of blood to their brain. It's, it's very difficult to say how accurate those, those measurements are, especially as we get older. And so one of my, my standard responses to everybody who's even borderline elderly or the young is to work on lifestyle modifications to keep a healthy blood pressure before we even think about medicine. And I've got a list of six of those I'd like to run through for our, our listeners. One, if you're overweight or obese, especially if, it, if it's in a severe way, you want to lose weight to get to a healthy weight or at least under a BMI of 30. Um, number next, number two, I always say number next for dictating. That's a <laughs> dictation thing. Number next, a heart-healthy diet, especially high in vegetables and unsaturated oils like the DASH diet. Number three, we would like low sodium, less than 2,400 milligrams per day, which many of us go over if we're not paying close attention to that. Now, I have a question, Andrew. If our kidneys are working right, aren't they going to get rid of the sodium we don't need? They totally are, and we're, we're trying to overpower even our normal homeostasis to lower our blood pressure. So uh, we're, we're trying to deplete the body of, of salt almost as a prescription so that although the kidneys will get rid of the extra salt, especially when you're young and healthy, avoiding salt will still lower your blood pressure. Okay. And so if you can be, you know, vigilant and militaristic, which is very difficult to do, uh, you can potentially do quite a bit of good without even taking medicine. A corollary to that is actually taking potassium or getting it via the diet with with foods that are high in potassium or even salt substitutes. One of the things that I like to recommend to my patients is the Mrs. Dash seasoning line. That's a potassium-based salt substitute, very tasteful. And if you can replace table salt with that, you're going to be doing a lot for your general health. So is Mrs. Dash related to the Dash diet? I've never gotten a firm answer on that, but I've always equated them in my mind because of the similar acronym. Okay. It's a high potassium, low sodium replacement. So you could have more salt. It's just a different salt. It's not sodium chloride. It's potassium chloride. Precisely. And, it, and it's very flavorful. That's what we've, we've replaced the table salt for the most part in our house with that. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. 
The last two things are kind of uh, no-brainers for general health. You want to have increased physical activity. I always recommend at least 30 minutes of cardio a day for people who are able to do that. Talk to your doctor first. And then last but not least, you want to limit alcohol consumption. No more than two drinks a day for men or one for women. There's, there's a sweet spot similar to in a previous show we talked about being fat and happy. Yes. Similar with alcohol, <laughs> especially things like red wine. If you take a little bit, it may have mortality benefits. If you take too much, it's detrimental. So you want to have a firm limit there that golden mean. So, Andrew, do you have for us another preventive medicine tip of the day? I do, and it's one that relates to your your neck of the woods, Tom. This is this has to do with skin cancer behavioral counseling, and it's Ooh. it's recommended by the USPSTF that adults, really young and old, but at least between 10 and 24 years are educated about maintaining a low exposure to UV light. Top three things you need to know. Number one, non-melanoma skin cancer is the most common type of cancer. And there are many risks besides cancer with exposure to UV light, including sunburn, premature aging of the skin, and even wrinkles. Number two, there's three types of UV light. They have to do with the wavelengths, UVA, B, and C. B is really the worst because it, it penetrates only to the epidermal layer of skin. Is that right, Tom? Well, ultraviolet B is more absorbed by the epidermis and damages the cells that, that lead to basal cell and squamous cell cancer. Fortunately, it does not penetrate through window glass, but it is the main cause of both sunburn and skin cancer. And so UVB is the bad one, B for bad. A also causes some damage, and C, UVC, we rarely see this because the ozone layer in the Earth's atmosphere picks it up and protects us. And A stands for aging. So the aging changes we see in the skin is due to ultraviolet A, or black light, which does pass through window glass. It goes deeper into the skin to the collagen, disrupts the collagen and elastic tissue, and that leads to wrinkles. My, my last of the top three things you need to know, and this is kind of a no-brainer that many, many of us already relate to, less is better. You want to look for sunscreen, which has the SPF, sun protection factor, 30 or higher is what I usually recommend. Tom, what do you recommend? I've been recommending to people with skin cancer 70 or higher. 30 is great. The problem is people usually put on only a quarter to half the thickness they need to get the 30. That's why I recommend the higher numbers. Not because you need a higher SPF achieved, but because people put it on too thin. Oh, I like that. The, the second thing I like to look for is the UPF, ultraviolet protection factor on clothing. And that's another one where the higher is better. Is that right, Tom? That is right. So this is your preventative medicine tip of the day. Make sure to cover up and use extra sunscreen as we're heading into the summer months. And finally, before the break, our preventive medicine tip of the day is always followed by the medical trivia question of the day which today is hair fingernails toenails the outer layer of the skin and animal horns but not antlers are made of the same protein additionally animal claws and hooves as well as the baleen plates of whales are made of this protein what is it you'll have to listen to the last segment of the show to find out but for now, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Andrew Mullally, discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Thomas McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing the two editors of a groundbreaking book called Catholic Witness in Healthcare. First, we have Dr. John Traveling. He's a Catholic deacon and an intern specializing in critical care medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia. Welcome, John. Thanks, Tom. And also his co-editor is Louise Mitchell. She's a bioethics professor and associate editor of the Lineker Quarterly, which is the medical moral journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Welcome, Louise. Thank you for having me. So why is this book so groundbreaking, John? Tom, I think this book is, is so groundbreaking because it, it really brings out there to, to the public a textbook that is very rich in Catholic ethos as concerning health care, particularly medical practice. 
you know, in anticipation for, in preparation for this book, we had surveyed the genre, and, you know, it's not that hard to find books, textbooks, scholarly work written by moral, Catholic moral theologians, Catholic ethicists, and so on. But what this book really brings to to its audience is a book that addresses many of these issues, but is importantly uh, written by, largely by, practicing faithful Catholic physicians. There are 25 contributing authors, and nearly half of them, 12, are are actually practicing physicians. Um, and we think this is really uh, a significant contribution that this book uh, brings to this to this area. There's a very very dynamic forward written by uh, someone that Andrew and I know well, Dr. Ashley Fernandez, who is a pediatrician and medical ethicist in Columbus, Ohio. And I want to quote a short part, part of it. I just I really enjoyed reading what he wrote. He said, For two decades I have hoped for a written tool that would demonstrate the harmony of faith and science in the practice of medicine. Traveling and Mitchell, along with their authors, have delivered a gift to the church and something that is necessary to help educate our next generation of Catholic healthcare professionals. Louise, how would you say that your efforts are a gift to the church? Well, just to follow up a little bit with what John was saying, I teach a course in clinical medicine and bioethics for the University of Mary in North Dakota. When I was developing the course, I was looking around for a textbook on Catholic clinical bioethics. So, you know, in the doctor's office, rather than just theory and practice, and I couldn't find them. So, in that way, this book fills a void, something that we need. And so um, it gives us something teaching. practical to use with patients. The mm-hmm. National Catholic Bioethics Center does a fantastic job with training in philosophy and ethics, but this fills a void that we need with patient care, doesn't it? Um, yes. Uh, it, it's fine to know all the theory and the principles, all the Catholic truths, um, but when you're in that, actually in the doctor's office, how do you put them into practice? How do you actually talk to your patients in a manner that respects their God-given dignity? And this is part of what this book does. That's that's been a reoccurring theme that I've I've had a chance to talk to folks about is what does it actually mean to have Catholic health care or provide the Catholic witness? In in another show we interviewed uh, Dr. Jonathan from Wichita about the ethics and religious directives of the Catholic Church. How does your book work to build on what we know from the philosophical and the moral teachings of the church? And how how does that witness of Catholic health fare, you know, especially the uniqueness of it? How does that brought to the, the patient's bedside? John, I know you, especially practicing in the ICU, you get to work with this on a daily basis. How have you witnessed the, the Catholic difference, and how do you bring that to light in the book? Well, throughout the book, many of, the, many of our authors have referenced and excerpted segments from the ERDs, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Health Care, and and that's all important, but they go beyond that. They uh, many have um, uh, have provided through either case based or just personal experience of their their work as clinicians, and have 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 shown how particular directives may be concretely applied in particular circumstances. Again, drawn from there, uh, these faithful practicing clinicians from their experience how to apply these principles. So this is this is uh, part of a part of what this book brings and, and offers and, and how it is different than 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 just going through the ERDs for example and saying, okay, I get, you know, what what the church teaches teaches or what the guidelines are for ethical health care. But this goes beyond in that it again, takes the experience and the uh, witness of of various clinicians to the audience. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing the book Catholic Witness in Healthcare with the book's two editors, Dr. John Traveline and Louise Mitchell. 
Louise, while you guys were starting this project, I, I love the idea and how it hatched out of a, a real need. Did you guys find it difficult to engage others, the, the many authors you guys have collected, uh, in helping with this project? Well, I joined the, the project kind of in the middle, and so maybe John has more insight into that. It, um, it, it really wasn't terribly difficult to recruit authors for the various for the chapters, our vision that we had, you know, I think faithful, practicing Catholic docs and others in, in the various fields uh, um, are excited about what they do and and have a have a, an inclination to want to share that with others. So, you know, the initial conception of the the book and sort of outlining what we thought would be good chapters and topics to present to an audience, and then looking at people that we knew largely from the Catholic Medical Association, but some other connections we had professionally uh, and knew of others, it really, as we approached them, almost almost everyone had agreed to, to share their experience. There were a few people because of time constraints that couldn't commit and didn't, but they, they were uh, very few. I've been involved in... Uh contributing to textbooks as a chapter author, and no, it's often a, a several-year process. How long did this book take to assemble? Oh, longer than I, <laughs> I would like to admit. Um, you know, the idea was as conceived. I, I just in, in a little preparation went back to an email and a meeting agenda that I had devised back in um, for a meeting that we had in, in February of 2010. Oh, my. To discuss the feasibility of this, this was after um, this was after uh, then a president of the Catholic Medical Association, Dr. Raviel, had suggested that maybe we needed to come up with some uh, a book that uh, that spoke to Catholic clinicians in medical ethics, and. So, yeah, it goes back to some feasibility meetings and discussions, sort of assembling uh, potential topics and authors, a uh, proposal that I had drafted and then submitted to, uh, oh, part of that process also, of course, was, was trying to, to pitch to various publishers of among maybe three or four that I had pitched to. Finally, the proposal was accepted by the Catholic University of America Press in April of 2011, so almost a year, a little more than a year later, it was accepted in 2011, and then, uh, then went into, you know, more not serious but earnest production, uh, with the assembly of the the text, and it was finally accepted for publication in March of 2016. So just to give you a, a rough sketch of the the timeline there. So this tells me that there is something in business psychology and business practice known as grit. There's a book by Angela <laughs> Duckworth by the name Grit. John Traveline has grit. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Now, in the yeah. foreword of the book, it says that this book is meant to be accessible to the, quote, learned lay person as well as those who practice medicine, students of the health sciences, and philosophers and clergy who require a scholarly, practical guide to authentic Catholic medicine and ethics, end quote. How in the world, John, were you able to appeal successfully to this broad group of individuals? Great question. I, I, you know, there's a certain complexity to the book that each, or at least most of the chapters, they, they plumb certainly the depths of their their particular clinical content, but there's um, there's another dimension to many of the chapters that that's that have that reach out and and and, and we we're seeing already an appeal to others who are non clinicians, let's say, because the author in that in the particular chapters will touch upon the ERDs, for example, as I alluded to, or will 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 look to relevant scripture, will look to relevant magisterial teachings. For example, the chapter on the uh, the Catholic pharmacist, until I read the draft of this, did not realize that John Paul II in the early 90s had given an address to Catholic pharmacists specifically. So 
So just as one example, so the authors, in addition to going deep into their particular clinical content, reach out and touch upon these other sources that help inform Catholic practice. You had mentioned the the variety of different authors. I know, Luis, you guys have physicians, nurses, a medical student, priests, philosophers. T- tell us tell us about some of these authors that you guys were able to compile, Luis. Well, I could tell you one story. Um, we had a, one of our chapters uh, drop out, and we were looking for another one to fill in the spot. And um, I came across a pamphlet for a new course in Catholic psychology and counseling at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Melbourne, Australia, and contacted one of the instructors about contributing a chapter, and there was immediate interest. And that's how we got Dr. Wanda Skaronska and the Chapter 11 on Catholic Psychology. So, John, how, how about some others? You know, again, through associations, professional contacts we have, just um, knowing others through the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, but besides you know, the physicians, but, what kind of professionals well, do you have, John? So I, I, I came to know Dr. Pete Colosi, for example, through the uh, through some connections in, in the field. And Pete is a moral philosopher, was teaching at the seminary in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia at the time, I mean, recruited him, and he's a very, um, very articulate, well, uh, uh, fine writer and presents very clear thinking in, in his thoughts and is able to communicate and well with with others and had a particular interest in medical ethics and taught such at uh, at the seminary. So we'd recruited him, for example. Others, you know, Jerry uh, Palazzolo, who's the president and CEO of Catholic Healthcare International, we had gotten to know through associations. And Jerry's idea background as a medical administrator, having worked for decades in uh, healthcare administration, Founding a healthcare Catholic Healthcare International, which has a very I hope we can get to talk to uh, about a vision for authentic Catholic healthcare um, modeled after the uh, Casa Sollievo della uh, Sofferenza, the the House for uh, Relief of Suffering in San Giovanni uh, Rotunda in Italy, the, the medical institution center founded by. Now Saint Padre Pio, so and John, reached out Jerry uh, for 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 some contribution, and in, I think a phenomenal uh, chapter as well. John, we'd like to hear more about that Casa model. We're going to go to a brief break, and we'll be right back after the break with more Doctor Doctor on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. We're interviewing Dr. John Traveline and Louise Mitchell about the book they co-edited called Catholic Witness in Healthcare. John, I'm the same age as you, born the same year, and during my training, if I ever came across the term Catholic medicine, I thought it only dealt with the beginning of life or reproductive ethics and end-of-life ethics. But as I've learned, thankfully, Catholic medicine is so much more than that. It's not just about opposing what is immoral in medicine, but more about nourishing the health of the whole person in truth and love complemented by faith. Is that part of your vision for this book? Absolutely, absolutely was, uh, Tom. Uh, that vision that there is so much more than just these these key popularized uh, issues that surround beginning of life and and now more so end of life. There's so much more in between in, in terms of the practice, practicing an authentically Catholic ethos as we, uh, as we encounter patient after patient. Louise, how is the book organized? Um, can I just follow up on what John was saying there? Um, following Christ, being a Catholic, is about being the best you can be, doing the best you can. And so opposing immora- immo- um, what is immoral is just a minimum. You end up saying, how close can I come to breaking the law without actually breaking <laughs> it or something like that? But yes. Jesus calls to much more than that, to be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. And so it's not about minimums, it's about excellence, imitating the saints in Christ. 
Uh, and so in this book, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to talk about excellence in patient care, not just about avoiding what's immoral. And we've organized the book in uh, three different sections. The first one is some of the foundational is- issues. The, um, what, there we have a, a theologian, a philosopher, and a priest talking about the biblical background um, of healing and healthcare, talking about Christian anthropology and the sacraments. We have a, a, the largest section on witness and practicing your Catholic faith and medicine. And this is where we have all the different specialties and doctors talking about how they serve their patients in their particular specialty. And the last section is on how do we shift the culture? How do we actually make medicine Catholic? How do we evangelize without turning people Catholic? We give them good examples as such, um, like the um, CASA from... uh, St. Pio. So, Louise, do you have any favorite chapters? Um, well, I have favorite sections of chapters. I mean, it's so, <laughs> you know, it, you, it's hard to pick anything. What's one of them? Particularly, yeah, uh, Wanda Skronska's chapter on uh, psychology, where she talks about forgiveness, but especially her section where she talks about suffering. And she says, God has given suffering an extraordinary dignity. So what Christ, he suffered for us. When we offer our sufferings to Christ, we participate in the salvation of others, it says in Colossians. Uh, and so many people think that suffering is just something to get rid of as fast as possible. And the Catholic view is, yes, that's fine to uh, take paid medication. At the same time, we should offer up our suffering to help others. We should use it as prayers for others. John, are there are there any chapters that you guys were able to edit that have never really been dr- addressed before? And you got to ask, why hasn't this been talked about before? Yeah, I, um, Tom, I, I thought Dr. O'Hara's chapter on, on pediatrics and witness in pediatric care was was uh, remarkable. It was one of the true gems of the the book. He goes into very specific prudent recommendations to give to parents uh, at all stages of a child's development. And it was just so well done. It was so richly Catholic. I particularly, as Louise said, sections of chapters in that chapter on pediatrics, I was particularly struck by the char- his discussion about character formation, particularly during the adolescent years for children. And, and, then, and then using very concrete examples nice treatment of chastity, for example, nice discussion on HPV, uh, human papillomavirus uh, vaccination, and so on. So that that was one of my favorites, although, as Louise suggested, too, and there's so much richness there that really, uh, altogether, the book is, um, is quite special, and, it, and it's hard to, to be favorites. It's sort of like this one. <laughs> Your children, yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing today Dr. John Traveline and Louise Mitchell, editors of the new groundbreaking book, Catholic Witness in Healthcare. Well, I thought it might be good to go through uh, some of the chapters that particularly struck me to find out what, what is in here that might interest the learned lay listener, as well as some of our medical professionals. So in Chapter 2, Catholic Anthropology and Medical Ethics, Louise what is anthropology for those who are not familiar with the term? Um, the study of the human being. Um, and it's more than just studying your culture or um, studying how you live, but what is the human being? We talk in Catholicism and St. Thomas Aquinas about the human being being a union of body and soul. And that is anthropology. And why is that necessary in today's culture? Have we forgotten what a person uh, is? I could come up with so many examples of why it's necessary. There's such a misunderstanding of anthropology today. Just some of the extreme examples. Peter Singer at Princeton talks about killing two-year-olds if their parents are inconvenienced by them. There was an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics about uh, why do we use the word abortion just for before birth? Why not after birth abortion? Uh, and a few years ago, there was an article in the British Medical Journal, journal called 
dignity is a useless concept. Oh, my gosh. It's no different from respect for persons. And all of these have a misunderstanding of the human person. So all Um, the decisions we make ethically will flow from what we think a person is and what a person is for. Yes. And uh, Peter Colosi's chapter brings out that the human person is self-transcendent. We can go beyond and above ourselves. Just the, for example, in order to be excellent as something, you have to know that you're not yet excellent, and that excellence is there, is possible. And so we are self-transcendent. We are unique. Um, Dr. Colosi talks about our uniqueness. Each and every single person is an absolute, individual, unique human being. And he also talks about relationality. We're all in relationship with others. You know, in today's culture, we talk about autonomy and doing your own thing and making your own choices. But every, but there is, it's impossible to be autonomous, totally autonomous, because we're, in order for you to have your desires fulfilled, someone has to help you out, or you have to maybe purchase the latest gadget from the store, so there's people involved. <laughs> well, there's all, we're always related to human beings, and they're always uh, helping us achieve our desires or uh, keeping us from them. And so we're re- relational. It, it definitely makes sense why that has to be the foundation of the whole book, to kind of explain where, especially as Catholics, we're coming from, One of the chapters that caught my eye, John, was Chapter 7, The Caring for Older Adults. I know many of our listeners have the responsibility and the the opportunity to care for for loved ones and maybe aging parents. Sister Mary Diana Drager, who's a physician and a Dominican nun, I'm sure she wrote a great chapter there that I'm going to look forward to reading. What can you tell us about that chapter, Caring for Older Adults, John? Well, both her and, and, and Dr. Powers very nicely go through some of the important, uh, again, it's a very practical, relatable to many people, I think, through a case-based analysis. They present three or four cases, uh, various scenarios of challenges that are faced by caring for uh, older adults, you know, whether it has to do with dementia, uh, uh, whether it has to do with a patients, parents no longer being able to live in their home and now requiring an assisted living situation, and just the various challenges that these uh, circumstances pose for people. And and what a a truly Catholic abiding ethos uh, is for for encountering these uh, these circumstances. It definitely seems as though they're, you know, with the whole circle of life and with the whole life trajectory, you go from being completely dependent to to one responsible and then frequently at the end of life dependent again. That's a tough role, I think, a lot of times for children to take on that role of being the caregiver. But I am interested in in talking to Sister Mary Diana more. I know we're going to hopefully have her on our show in the near future. She is scheduled on this topic, yes. Yeah, I think that'll be a great opportunity. That That's a good topic. And another topic I saw that interests me a lot in family medicine is the spiritual perspective in rehabilitation medicine, which deals a lot with pain control and rehabilitating folks, especially in the modern area of of chronic pain. And and Dr. Jose Santos wrote this. What, What can you tell us about this chapter, Luis? I thought one thing that struck me about this chapter was it was somewhat different from the other chapters. Dr. Santos actually says to use faith as a therapeutic tool. So if your patient is open to it, to talk to them about their faith and how their faith can be involved in their recovery process. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, And he also talked about looking at the whole person, body, soul, spirit. So those, I think, made it a unique chapter. And he, like John, I believe, is a deacon, or at least in training to be a deacon, isn't he? Yeah, no, that's uh, yes. that's correct. He was ordained, no. um, spoke with him subsequently. He was just ordained this past uh, June, I think, of 17. Yeah. Oh, thanks be to God. Yeah, praise God, yes. Yeah, and rehab medicine deals with some very challenging medical problems, and usually chronic and difficult. Absolutely. 
Well, we're going to sign off for this segment, uh, but we'll come back for more since there's so much more to talk about here. For now, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Bellali, discuss health matters because people matter. We're going to do something different today and continue our interview from the second and third segments of the show into the final segment. But first, I've got to answer the medical trivia question I posed in the first segment. And that is, hair, fingernails, toenails, the outer layer of skin and animal horns, but not antlers, are made of the same protein, and so are animal claws, and hooves, as well as the baleen plates of whales. What protein are these made of? You know, Tom, I wasn't sure until you got to the baleen plates of whales. <laughs> and then that, that was what we call a dead giveaway. <laughs> dead giveaway, yes. What dead skin and hair and all those things are made of is a protein called keratin. And you've probably heard of it. And the root of keratin care is from a proto-Indo-European term meaning Horn, And in fact, some of my patients even grow on their skin cutaneous horns, which look like spires of dead skin sticking up, and they are literally made of keratin. And one place that this is practical in the medical world is that there's a certain type of organism that eats keratin. And Andrew and his specialty of family medicine comes across this, as do I in dermatology. Well, they, they crawl around. They crawl around. Yeah, it's, it's called, you know, ringworm or uh, onychomycosis. It's, it's, ring, it's uh, fungal infections of the skin, nails, or hair, and, you know, ringworm of the scalp would be included. So because these little creatures like to eat keratin, uh, that's their protein, that's their food source, and so we get to treat it. Uh, you know, horns are made of keratin, but uh, antlers are actually made of bone. And so antlers are a little bit different, even though they fall off just like horns can. So that is your medical trivia question of the day. But now we have the pleasure of continuing with the editors of Catholic Witness and Healthcare, John Traveline and Louise Mitchell, our discussion. And we've been working through some of the chapters of this book, and we're up to a, a chapter on the Catholic pharmacist. Now, what possibly could be of interest or importance to pharmacists from a, a Catholic faith perspective, John? There, there are many issues, and I'll just, just briefly, to, to give you a flavor of this, Drs. Flanagan and Mangione outlined a, a short list of, of the issues related to, that are relevant to pharmacists, issues related to contraception, such as the sale of condoms and dispensing of contraceptive or abortifacient drugs. They, they touch upon providing oral syringes to individuals who may be addicted to in, injection drug users, and it, uh, they, they they touched upon uh, lethal and you know pre preparing injections, preparing injections as pharmacists for lethal drugs used in some states for you know, capital punishment execution. They touched interestingly on the sale of cigarettes in in commercial pharmacists uh, who may have you know pharmacy stores where they're they're dispensing other uh, substances or selling other substances. Actually, the sale of cigarettes in a pharmacy in view of the, the, the adverse effects of, of cigarettes uh, on patient health. So uh, interestingly, you know, as you, you plumb into this, the, the, the content of pharmacy from a Catholic perspective, all sorts of issues um, come up, and I know there are others as well. So. And before I forget, Louise, this 513-page book can be purchased where and for how much? Um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, all your local um, book places, $45. $45. happy to have you purchase more and spread the word. Put up reviews on Amazon. Ah, that's a good point. Yes, $45 for a textbook of medicine of 500 pages is a deal and a half. That's incredibly inexpensive for what you get in this. Chapter 13 is my favorite. It's on the formation of medical students written by Anonymous. John, what is the genesis of this particular chapter? A medical student who was 
in, in my uh, medical school, uh, we would gather as part of a Catholic medical student association. Particularly uh, impressed me with with the ability to to see a, a integration of of faith, of, of a very vibrant, uh, robust faith life with medical education as the students as they were going through through medical school at our institution. And as this book was being conceived and organized and approached, that I, I felt that this would be an important topic to uh, to convey to others so how to blend one's uh, formation as a medical student with, with ongoing formation in, in faith. Tom, aren't you working on an initiative right now with the CMA to help the medical students in, in faith formation? We're working particularly with uh, pre-med students, and I'm wondering, John, if this chapter wouldn't serve as an incredible introduction to medical school for the Catholic pre-medical student. Have you thought about possibly using it in that way? Tom, we, we have. Uh, as, you, as you know, the, the, the Catholic Medical Association is very much involved in the past five, or five years in running uh, uh, an intense medical ethics boot camp for, for Catholic medical student and of which for which this chapter I think will will become an important uh, part of their their reading list. Have you thought about using it for pre-medical students who are still in college before they get to medical school? Um, I think I, I haven't thought through that much. I think it does have will have may have some utility for those students, particularly those who are later on in their their collegiate path, maybe just on the brink of of stepping into medical school. I think it may have important relevance uh, to them, yes. What do you think are some of the key points that the medical student made in this chapter that those considering training in medical school should be aware of? You know, medical school is characterized a lot, as we know, by... Uh, Have a relationship with God. ...knowing <laughs> about diseases and things like this. And... And I, you know, as I think more and more, and, and, and the author of this chapter points to this uh, to some extent, you know, formation in faith is about not just knowing, for example, not just knowing about Jesus Christ, but knowing Jesus Christ. And yes. uh, I think this this is so important, certainly in our formation in faith, but it, it nicely is essential, I believe, for uh, our formation as physicians as we, we step to the bedside and care for, for patients. So um, I, think, yeah. I think that's... If that's we think about it, there are, what, 130 or so medical schools? Yes. And there are five, maybe, Catholic medical schools? There are. Something like so that. most... Catholics are going to be going to a non-Catholic medical school. Exactly. And, yeah, to read this will give them some some foundation in how they can situate themselves as Catholics in their non-Catholic I think we school. need to find some way to get this in the hands of Catholics. And I have some ideas I want to talk to you about offline about how we can do that. You have done a tremendous work in getting this out there. But I'd like to move on to Chapter 14 which is on ethics and clinical research. I did clinical research for two years in the U.S. Army in vaccine research. So I understand, but maybe our listeners don't understand, why would we need a chapter on the ethics of clinical research? How could it possibly be different for Catholics or anybody else, John? Well, there are so many issues, as you know, in terms of respect to the dignity of the human person, which importantly uh, has implications for developing for, for clinical research, all sorts of issues surrounding justice and that, that, that touch upon, you know, in, in pharmaceutical industries for drug development and so on. So there are many uh, ethical issues that are uh, certainly very relevant to clinical research. I think this has been coming to the forefront more even in the lay media with the vaccines. I, in family medicine, I get a lot of questions about how vaccines were developed, especially using stem cell lines that may have been from, you know, aborted babies um, from a few decades ago. I was really happy to see that this information was covered. I, th I think a lot of our listeners are really going to appreciate this book. What, what kind of closing thoughts would you guys like to add for people who might be thinking of purchasing this book, Luis? 
closing thoughts. So, okay, well, so if God created all creation and us, he also created all the physical laws such as gravity and things like that. And everything that goes into the spiritual, psychological, biological, chemical, anatomical makeup of human beings. If we practice Catholic medicine according to God's laws, we are also practicing good medicine, and in fact, the best medicine, because we are practicing it in truth and love. And John, do you have any last thought you'd like to leave with listeners? Yeah, to that last point regarding um, vaccines, besides the clinical research chapter, I take you back to the chapter on uh, pediatrics where the author very nicely outlines those um, vaccines that are derived from licit, morally licit sources and those not. So um, closing thought, very practical, very practical content in this book as it relates to Catholic practice and even beyond the usual topics that you would think of. So um, I would like to leave the audience with, with that. So you can very purchase... Catholic Witness and Healthcare for $45 online. Editors Dr. John Traveling and Louise Mitchell have been our guests. Thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Your medical decisions today can have profound consequences for tomorrow. So please choose wisely, choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll hear the first of a two-part series, Another Doctor at Calvary. Joined by Dr. Mullally and Dr. Stroud, Dr. McGovern will take listeners through the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ from a medical perspective. Using historical records and modern medical knowledge, he'll answer questions long debated by experts. In part one, Dr. McGovern will focus on the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' torture by the Roman soldiers. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. For more information, visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.